Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. Last week, we talked about um, forgiveness, forgiving from the heart, and I'm sure some of you got a glimpse of some bitterness uh, there in your heart that was flowing out of your heart to reach and impact the people that you're in contact with. And so this week, I want to talk about taking heart. Um, On the heels of talking about forgiving from the heart, which I know uh, is not easy, I want to talk about uh, taking heart heart. I am, this, this expression shows up more than a few times in your Bible, and I've just been kind of taken by it, obsessed with this phrase, take heart. And of course, when we say take heart, what we mean is let your heart take courage. In fact, some of your Bibles will translate it that way. So when we say take heart, what we mean is let your heart take courage. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, described his Christian walk as war. And he says to his young protege, Timothy, in something of a farewell, he says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight of faith. And if, in fact, our Christian walk is a fight, is a war, then it is a fight of faith. It is a war to believe the promises of God in less than promising circumstances. You've experienced this before. It is a good fight of faith. If, in fact, we are engaged in a war... And we're looking to fight the good fight of faith. You need to understand that you're fighting against unbelief. That unbelief comes to undermine your faith. And unbelief comes to determine your future. When we talk about the life of faith, I know often we invite people to accept Jesus and put their faith in him. And when we talk about putting your faith in Jesus, we usually talk about past events. We talk about his death. We talk about his resurrection. We talk about the achievement that that was. We talk about the implications that it has. But you need to understand when we invite people to put your faith in Jesus, we're not just asking you to put your faith in the past. We're asking you to put your faith in a future hope. That the death and the resurrection of Jesus is a down payment. And there's more to come. So this past event gives us a future hope. It's not just that you put your faith in the past We put our faith into a future. Unbelief will come to undermine that future. I want to take a moment and just talk. The the sermon is not necessarily on unbelief, but I want to talk about the seriousness of unbelief. Because I find it at times acceptable 
And it's one of those sins um, that it's not just acceptable, it's, it's understandable. I understand that people in this situation facing these circumstances would be walking in unbelief. How could we expect something more? As they're walking through these things with these people in these times, well then, unbelief is just a normal, natural part of what it means to be a red-blooded human being. And so I think there is a sort of a... I'm just not sure that we think about unbelief the way that God thinks about unbelief. And I want you to see the seriousness of your unbelief. I want to look real quickly at a passage in Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. First thing I want you to see is the connection between unbelief and evil. Is that how you would describe evil? When you think of evil, what type of sins do you associate with evil? For me, it's not unbelief. Like I said, unbelief for me is justified. Unbelief for me is acceptable. Unbelief for me is no big deal. Unbelief for the writer of Hebrews is evil. He makes a connection between unbelief and evil, and then he also makes a connection between unbelief and the deceitfulness of sin. And I would suggest to you, submit to you, that unbelief is the deceitfulness of sin. That there is the act of sin, but what lies at the root of sin is unbelief. That sin, before you act on it and it destroys something, it first deceives you. And you believe that God is not who he says he is, that he doesn't have your best in mind, that he's not good, that he's not there, that he's not aware, that he doesn't care. I don't know what it is. But at the root of our sin, or the act of sin, is that we're deceived. We're deceived before we step into something that destroys. I would submit to you that unbelief is the deceitfulness that lies at the root of your sin. It's serious. And it is in abundance in my own heart, and I'm guessing that it's in abundance in this uh, church. So I want you to see that it's, it's, it, it's a big deal. It's not no big deal, it's evil. It lies at the root of most of the sin going on in your life. I also want to remind you of the importance of faith, that faith is essential for us. When we talk about faith, we're talking about a confidence in what we hope for. A confidence in something that has not come yet. But we're sure that it's coming. We're talking about assurance in what we do not see. That's what we're talking about when we say that that faith is essential to this war. That we're fighting the good fight of faith. You know uh, that the Bible says that the just shall live by faith. You're called to live by faith. We are saved through faith. You're not saved by faith, but you're saved through faith. Without faith, these are huge statements about how very important faith is. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith is missing the mark. I don't care what it is. Whatever is not of faith, whatever doesn't have that type of confidence, whatever doesn't have that type of assurance is sin. It will be to you according to your faith. That's a, cra- that's a crazy statement. Jesus said it. Not Joel Olstein or Benny Hinn or whoever's hijacked it. Jesus said that. He said it. And he meant it when he said it. And it's one of the great mysteries of our faith that God will do exactly what you're expecting him to do in a situation. What are you expecting God to do? Right, like right now, even in this service. Well, I don't know. I just expected that we'd sit through this and endure it. And then we'd go to lunch. Hoping for a nap. What are you expecting? That's a wild statement for Jesus to say, God will do what you expect him to do. What are you expecting him to do? It will be to you according to your faith. You'll experience the things that you have faith for. So unbelief, super serious. Hear me. Unbelief, super serious. Faith, super essential. And we fight. We fight to believe the promises of God. We fight to believe the promises of God in less than promising circumstances. Am I right? You know this. I don't have to say this. You know this. We insist on the word of God in a world that is falling apart. We insist on things in many ways that we are not seeing and we are not experiencing. We insist on the word of God in families that are falling apart. We insist on the word of God in bodies that are falling apart. We believe the promises of God in what, in what are less than promising circumstances, and that's a war. You will war against unbelief. You will war to take heart. This was certainly true for Paul. He did fight the good fight of faith. He kept the faith. He fought to believe God in desperate circumstances. I want to read Paul's resume to you. And hopefully it's an encouragement. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, There's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who wants to give their life to Jesus? Just flood to the front right now. What's wild about Paul is, is that 
is that after all of this, after sharing with us his resume, and people saw his resume on his body, scarred, stoned, beaten, haggard, tired, many a sleepless nights, and he's still proclaiming, he's still preaching, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. I don't know about you, but I would have been, you know, I don't know, Paul. Uh, got better uh, things to do. And uh, looks tough. No health, wealth, or prosperity here. Come, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, can, I, can I tell you my favorite shipwreck uh, story? Paul was a take heart kind of guy. And we can learn a lot from Paul. My, my, my favorite shipwreck story, and you can read it for yourself in Acts 27. Great story. Um, I'll, I'll tell a condensed, shortened version of it to you. But Paul, Paul is in prison. And he needs to go to Rome. And he needs to go to Rome um, to, to, to stand trial. He's going to answer for Christianity. He's going to talk about what it is and why it's causing so many problems. And so he needs to get to Rome to stand before Roman governors and answer for what's going on. He's a prisoner, and they decide that they're going to transport this prisoner on a ship to Rome so that he can stand before Roman officials and judges and answer for Christianity. So they throw the guy on this boat... And they decide to go in a certain direction, and they're not getting anywhere fast. The weather is not cooperating with the direction that they want to go. And so, Paul says to him, he he actually says in verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, and they kept going. They kept going because they were bent on a direction that was going to bring destruction. They didn't want to wait. They didn't want to go to another port. They didn't want to wait, so they kept going. And so what Paul says happens. And we read... Um, that they are violently storm-tossed. And so they begin to toss the cargo overboard. You know you're in a desperate spot when you start tossing the cargo overboard. And the sun or stars didn't appear for many days. And then it says that all hope, all hope on this boat of being saved was at last abandoned. They go through a storm for 14 days. 14 days they're being tossed back and forth. 14 days they're being thrashed. And then Paul emerges. Actually, sorry, before the 14th day, Paul emerges. And he says to him, take heart. 
There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Take heart. Take heart, all 276 of you on this ship. It will be exactly as God said. And then, 14 days of being tossed. All hope gone of being saved. And here's Paul encouraging people, take heart. It will be exactly as God said it would be. After 14 days... Paul emerges again, and he says to him, take food. Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. And then he says, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all of them. He broke it and began to eat. Then they... We're all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And then it is exactly as God said it would be. And they get safely to shore. And there is this happily ever ever after moment. And so it was at the end of Acts 27 that we were all brought safely to land. And this is what I love, and this is what I gleaned, and this is what I gained from this passage. Paul could have easily been in the place of saying, God doesn't love me, and people don't listen to me. And instead, he's stepping forward, and he's saying, take heart. It will be exactly as God said it will be. He could have easily stepped back. Some of us are in situations like Paul's in. You're on a ship right now that is falling apart. It's been 14 days of being tossed back and forth. For some of you, 14 years of being tossed back and forth by people in your life, by circumstances, by situations, but you're just being tossed back and forth. And Paul could have easily sat back and said, God doesn't love me. Is this how you treat your servant, God? I can't even get to trial. I'm not trying to get to a vacation spot. I'm trying to get to martyrdom. This cruise doesn't end in Mexico. This cruise ends in Rome, and it ends with my death, and it ends with you being glorified, and I know it. And instead of shrinking back and saying, questioning the goodness of God, as he's being thrashed in the belly of this ship, he stands believing the promise of God, he stands believing the word of God, and he starts to encourage the other people in the ship. And this is unbelievable. I wish I could see this. I wish, um, I wish Paul was here to talk to me about how he did this. But in the belly of this ship, in the belly of this barf-filled boat, with everyone despairing, thinking there's no way we're going to survive. 
Paul breaks bread and gives thanks, and he leads a communion service in the belly of a bar-filled boat. Take heart. Let's break bread and be grateful, because it will be exactly as God said it was going to be. And they're encouraged. 14 days. They've not eaten. They're so scared. They're despairing. They're throwing everything overboard. They've given up all hope. Paul, as a take heart kind of guy, stands up rather than slipping back into, God doesn't love me. If he did, I wouldn't be walking through this. And he doesn't slip into, and no one listens to me. I mean, if it were me and I got the stage, I would call attention to the fact that I already said this. It would have been like, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but toot. I told you this. You can die in this ship. You know? Told you not to go this direction. You ignored me. No one listens to me, and God doesn't love me. No, he stands on the promises of God. And he encourages the people around him. Paul's not the only guy who used this phrase, take heart. Jesus used this word. Can I read to you um, a, couple, a couple of instances where Jesus says to people, take heart. In Matthew 9, verse uh, 2, Jesus says to a paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Further down in Matthew 9, there's another story. And Jesus encounters a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. And she came up behind him and she touched the fringe of his garment. And she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, I love this. I love Jesus. This woman has been sick for 12 years. This woman is not only sick, she's sick of being sick. Not only is she sick of being sick, she's sick of her her cures. We read in the other gospel accounts that she's spent everything she's had trying to find a cure. So not only is she sick, she's sick of being sick. It's been 12 years and she's sick of her cures. And she gets to Jesus and she touches him, which is not something she was allowed to do. And the first thing that Jesus says to her when he turns around is, Take heart. Take heart. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. In Matthew 14, the disciples see Jesus walking on the sea. They're terrified. And they say, It's a ghost. And they cry out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. Mark 10, we read about Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, and he's sitting by the roadside and he's screaming, Son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone around him is saying, Shut up, you're making us feel uncomfortable. And then Jesus says, Call him. Call him. And so the same group that's telling him to be quiet is now saying to him, take heart, Jesus picked you. Take heart, he called you out. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Take heart, he picked you. 
Take heart, he calls you by name. Take heart, he knows you. Take heart, he's calling on you. Take heart, he knows you, he sees you. Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And Bartimaeus, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Of course he did. That's what happens in our hearts when he calls our name. That's what happens for us when we experience that. And it's like, no, God is after me. He's put his heart, he's put his finger on my chest. He is calling my name right now. Some of you know that even in the middle of this sermon about circumstances and taking heart, it's like Jesus himself is putting his finger on your chest and saying, no, I pick you. I'm calling you. And there's something in you that wants to stand up and throw off the unbelief that you've been living in. Throw it off. Get up. Come after him. It will be exactly as he said. I know that you've been tossed about. I know that it's been, been more than 14 days. I know that you've been given up everything. You've given up all hope that you're going to be saved. Take heart. It will be exactly as he says it will be. And then, of course, famously in John 16, 33, Jesus is parting. He's bailing. He's leaving to his disciples. And he said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And when we talk about God's promises, we need to talk about this promise as well. You will have trouble. They aren't just promises of provision. They aren't just promises of protection. They aren't just promises of health and wealth. The promises of God are that you will face trouble. So don't be surprised when you're going through a fiery trial, says Peter. Don't be surprised when you're getting tossed. It's part of the deal. God promised it. Know that you're right. If you're getting tossed, I am right in the middle of God's will for my life. I'm right in the middle of what he promised for me. Trouble. My experience is that what you resist just persists in your life. And when you finally stop and you ask God, God, what are you wanting to do in this? Rather just rejecting it as the devil's work, what would you want to do through this? If this situation were perfect, what would it be perfect for? What are you wanting to develop in me? How are you wanting to be glorified in and through me in this situation? Jesus often said, take heart. It was an expression he used. And my hope is that after this sermon, it'll be an expression that we use. Take heart. Why? Why did he use it so much? Why did he say it so much? And I think the answer answer to that is that we know that it's very easy to lose heart. That many of us, If we've been facing something or someone for any period of time, we've lost heart. And so Jesus, his constant reminder to people, especially people dealing with sickness, especially people that feel forgotten, take heart. Let your heart take courage. Take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm not even going to pretend to know all that that means. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Sounds awesome. 
Taking heart is an action. It's something that we do. We take heart. We let our hearts take courage. How do we do it? What are the things that we use to fight this good fight of faith and to wage war on unbelief? We meet, we preach, we eat, and we repeat. We do it all over again. And then we meet, and then we preach, and then we eat, and then we repeat it all over again. We meet, we preach, we eat, and then we do it all over again. We persist in it. We persevere in it. We don't give up on the meeting. We don't give up on eating. We keep coming to the table, remembering the body broken, the blood shed. And we keep preaching Jesus. And we keep insisting on his word in a world that is falling to pieces. We meet Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without getting tossed. How was it that Paul was in the belly of this boat, not being tossed? His faith was not wavering. He was standing on the word of God saying, it will be exactly as God says. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You will lose heart if you make a habit of not meeting together with other Christians. You will. You will lose heart. Don't make it a habit, not meeting together. You know what a habit is? A habit is something that you do without thinking about it. Don't make it a habit. Not meeting together. Because one of the main reasons that we get together is to deal with unbelief. And to remind one another of these great and precious promises that we've been given. We declare them in worship. We say it. We greet each other with them. We see them in the word of God. And we take heart. You will lose heart if you stop meeting together. I don't care how you meet but you have to meet with other brothers and sisters to do this, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, or else you will lose heart. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It will happen if you make a habit of not meeting together with other brothers and sisters. And I know what you're probably thinking is, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like church. I don't like to come. I don't like the meetings. I don't like what we do. And to that, I would say that it is a command that we meet together. Jesus isn't just our Savior, he's our Lord. He doesn't just scoop us up and rescue us. He tells us what to do. And there's a lot of things that he says to me that I don't like. There's a lot of things that he tells me to do that I don't like. I don't like confessing my sin. Not particularly into that. Not into repentance. I'm not into being wrong not into it. I'm not into being uncomfortable. I don't enjoy being uncomfortable. I don't like that either. I don't like tithing, and I do it. I don't like talking to some of you, and I do it. (laughs) Because God says to. 
he's not just uh, our homeboy. Uh, he is Lord. And what he says goes. He doesn't just do things for us. He demands things from us. And if you're living in this world where you think Jesus just does things for you, you're mistaken. He does things for us, and then he demands things from us. And if you're still calling the shots, I don't know who you're following. We meet, we preach, we preach. No, you preach every week long. And then we go to lunch. You preach. No, no, no. We preach. We preach. Let us consider how we can spur each other on. Let us consider. You preach. You talk to you more than anyone else does. You enroll yourself into all kinds of things. No one is more influential in your life than you are. You're constantly talking to yourself. And not only are you talking to yourself like just suggesting things, you're proclaiming things. You're announcing things. I swear it, you preach. And every Sunday morning, I would suggest that we come together and we preach. Because what I say is not necessarily what is heard. Because you announce different things to yourself. Have you ever listened to your listening or noticed your noticing, your filter? Sometimes people come forward and they tell me, Travis, when you said this, and I swear I did not say that. You know, it was like that sermon you gave, I don't know, six months ago. And you said, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I never had a sermon that said, blah, 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 blah. You're interpreting, connecting the dots, receiving, preaching. And my encouragement to you, because some of you think that preaching is something public, something that comes from a pulpit, and something that comes from a professional. But I would suggest to you that preaching, announcing, enrolling, declaring, that these are things that don't just belong to professionals, don't just belong in public, and don't just come from the pulpit. There's actually a private type of preaching. I will tell you on a weekly basis that I preach to myself before I preach to you. And not everything that I preach to myself do I preach to you, but I preach to myself. And it's not just me. I'm not the only crazy one. David did it as well. When we read this scripture from Psalm 27 earlier, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. He's not talking to others. He's talking to himself. His weaker self is saying to his, his, his stronger self is saying to his weaker self, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He's preaching to himself. And some of you need to stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. Quit listening to all the voices and start preaching to yourself. I can see this guy. I know this, this, this feeling, this place that he's in. And he's just like, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Let your heart take courage. Take courage in him. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. And it's not just here. It's all throughout the Psalms, which have taught the church to pray for thousands of years. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Who's he talking to? Himself. 
Some of you need to go into a room, close the door, and stop listening to yourself constantly and start preaching to yourself. Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Oh, my heart is going to rejoice in him. He's just enrolling himself. Stir thyself up in the most holy faith. That is not just my job. If that's only happening for you once a week, there'll be zero growth in your life. You stir you up. You preach to you. You call yourself out. You declare the truth of his promises. It'll be exactly as God said it was going to be. And hopefully people won't overhear you. For some For some reason, it's become really acceptable to listen to yourself and not very acceptable to talk to yourself. Everyone's listening to themselves, but the guys that, you know, talk to themselves, well, we'll hand them a dollar on our way to lunch, right? We don't do that. Talk to yourself. You preach to yourself, and then you preach to others. Let us consider how we could stir one another up. It's not just coming from the pulpit, it's not just coming from the pro, and it's not just coming in this very public setting. When you hear people who are losing heart, you can hear it. Stand up, stir yourself up, and preach the promises of God. What do I say? Say what God says. If all you know is something, one thing that God says, say what God says. Preach to yourself, preach to others, preach his promises because faith comes from hearing and it comes from hearing from the word of God. Declare it. If you don't have any original material, it doesn't matter. Just read and rip something from the Bible. Plagiarism, totally acceptable in this faith. We eat. I just wanted to put that one in there. We eat. It's what we do. As the people of God, we enjoy the presence of God and we eat. Jesus, um, you'll notice this, has this pattern of dining with the disappointed. This pattern of eating with people who feel far off. And I would say that we take heart at the table, that we get something more than just our physical body is nourished at the table. And Jesus is inviting us to the table. Do you know the famous passage in Revelation about I stand at the door and, and knock? Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke. And discipline. And some of you are like, yeah, totally. That's exactly what Jesus would have for me. That's why I don't want anything to do with responding to him today. I know that he's got something to say, and I'm pretty sure it's not good. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. He's talking to Christians, not to unbelievers, but to believers. Here I am. I'm standing at the door, and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm coming in to give him a piece of my mind. I'm coming in to tell you what you know already, which is that 
you've screwed up. And I'd like to tell you all the reasons how. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with that person and they with me. There's this pattern of Jesus supping with people. People who feel like they're in trouble. People who feel disappointed. Jesus dines with these people. My favorite story of Jesus dining with the discouraged is John 21, when he comes back to his disciples who've gone back to fishing because they've just walked away from it all. Jesus cooks some breakfast. It's a beautiful story. You can read it. I'm not going to. I will, however, read you the story from Luke 23 about two guys who are discouraged, two guys who are seven miles from Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem, the center of religious devotion, not just for that area, but for our world, Jerusalem, the very center of religious devotion, and these guys are headed out of town. They're seven miles from that place, and Jesus encounters these guys on the road, Let's read it. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up, walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And then he asked them, what are you discussing together as you you walk along? And they stood still. Their face is downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked, Are you only visiting Jerusalem? Who does not know the things that have happened here in these last days? What things? He asked. Asked the guy who was crucified. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who's going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all that took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman said. But they didn't see Jesus. And then he stops them, finally stopped this painful monologue. Then he says to him, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going to go farther. And they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road? And he opened the scriptures to us. They got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. They got up having encountered Jesus and they returned at once to the center of religious devotion. They returned at once to the place that they were leaving. And there they found the eleven, those with them assembled together and saying, 
It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Jesus reveals himself in a special and profound way when we break bread, when we do this in remembrance of him, when we lift up and recognize and respond to his body broken for us and his blood shed for us, he shows up, he manifests himself in a special way, he reveals himself to us. Worship team, would you guys come? And here's what we know when we come to the table, is we don't just remember something that happened in the past, we remember the promises for our future. We remember that this is a deposit. And in Romans 8, we read, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is what we remember when we come to the table. Is that the guy who sent his son means business. That the guy who signed this in blood intends to finish it. We're not just remembering a past event. We get a future hope when we come to the table. He who didn't spare his own son is going to see us through. He who didn't spare his own son is going to finish this thing. He who didn't spare his own son. We look back and we reflect on this past event, but it has huge implications for our present and our future. Won't he also give us all things? Won't he also do what he said he was going to do? The guy who sent his son is not messing around. That is the message that comes at the table when we remember body broken for us and blood shed for us. The guy that says it is serious about it and it cannot fail. He didn't come all this way to leave us. He didn't start this just to abandon us. He will see us through. There's blood on the line. The guy who said it is not joking around. This is what we come to understand when we come to the table. And we persist. We don't just meet. We don't just preach. We don't just eat. We do it over and over again. We persist. We persevere. Romans 8 goes on to say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're on a ship much like the ship that Paul was on. You're being tossed back and forth by situations, by circumstances, by people. One day you think there's hope and you see the sun coming up and the other day you're smashed with storms. 
You're in that place of wavering and you're being tossed about. It's not just that your family or the ship is being thrown back and forth. You yourself are being rattled. Do not throw away your confidence. The one who started this is going to finish this. The one who gave his own son up intends to see you through. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship and come to the table. Those who've been called on to serve communion, I'd like you to say to the people, take heart, the body of Jesus broken for you, his blood shed for you. Tell everyone who comes to the table to take heart. Let your hearts take courage. Jesus, we come to church because we want to get committed to you. And I just want to stand here and thank you for your commitment to us. My commitment to you wavers. My commitment to you is just tossed. My commitment to you goes back and forth. Lord, I'm so prone to conversations about how you don't love us and how no one listens to us. And I want to be a man who can stand in the belly of this ship and give thanks and break bread and call people's attention to what God said and what God is doing. I pray for those here who've just been listening to themselves for too long that they would stand up, they would preach the promises of God, that they would stir themselves up in the most holy faith. Pour out your Holy Spirit on this church. Give us power to do what we cannot do. Amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time. I